Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank series from Indicast. Today I had the honor to speak to someone who always believed that it is far more honorable to fail than to cheat. And uh, in spite of, or maybe because of this motto and his integrity, he was the darling of the FMCG industry in the 1980s, Mr. Gurcharan Das. In two words, he is modesty personified. You'll know what I mean once you listen to the next 20-odd minutes. So let's uh, dive into the conversation now. Hello, Mr. Gurcharan Das. It's an honor to have you here. I'm delighted to be with you. Mr. Das, uh, you are a graduate in honors from Howard University in philosophy and politics. You later attended uh, Howard Business School, and uh, you've led multiple identities of successful businessman, uh, VP and MD of P&G Worldwide, venture capitalist, consultant, author, voracious reader, diehard cricket fan. You've been in theater. Your plays have been directed. Was there a point early in your life when you felt, God, I'm good at so many things, but I'm confused on how to prioritize them or what to pick over the other? Well, I never thought I was good at (laughs) things, but I did know that I was going to write. In fact, when I graduated from college, uh, I knew I was going to write a novel one day. So I basically wore two hats. I worked, uh, I, I enjoyed the business world, so I worked in... I worked. I had a 30-year career in business, but I also wrote plays and novels, and uh, I, I I wrote three plays in my 20s. I wrote A Fine Family in my 30s, and then I wrote non-fiction after that. And I today I do a, this column in the Times, which goes into in different ways is also published in a number of eight 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 other newspapers. How did your parents react to you you deciding? a completely unconventional route back then. I must, uh, I must confess, they were very confused. <laughs> <laughs> they were very confused, and they, but they g- gave me the space, and, and, and in fact, as an undergraduate, I kept major, changing my major every year. <laughs> and that used, to, that used to really confuse my mother because she didn't know what to tell the neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> every year they had a new... What is your son studying? <laughs> One year it was chemistry, another year it was architecture, another year it was philosophy, and so on. So you you must have met very interesting people uh, out there. Yeah, well, it's uh, got a lot of education is really what you get out of it is a lot what you put into it. You know. Uh, well, I have to credit my first job to you and your book India Unbound. Uh, it's a different story that I have moved on, but I always wanted to talk to you about this. Uh, it was about two years ago, Mr. Gurcharan, and uh, the interviewer asks me about my favorite book, and I say, well, it's in the Unbound, and he's also read the book, and he uh, asks me to explain in the form of a chemical reaction or equation in 30 seconds flat, uh, Mr. Gurcharan Das's philosophy on monopoly and how much he hates it or loves it. And I was 22, filled with uh, optimism and ideals after reading your book on how you hated the license raj, red tape, corruption, bureaucracy, and I remember very vividly what I said. I said, uh, if you add two beakers of Monopoly to one teaspoon of Gurcharan Das, you will get two immiscible liquids and one glass of capitalism as 
that teaspoon of gurcharan will convince the two beakers of monopoly that competition is indeed good for everyone <laughs> i don't know whether that got me the job but uh, he was amused and uh, you've always been against uh, red tape corruption so as a youngster during your stint in the corporate world did you ever feel like killing someone out of frustration as it would take a long time no i guess i was like everybody else you know caught in doing my job and only as i grew up you know i realized the damage that uh, monopolies did and how i saw the virtue of competition and how it improved products improved people's lives brought down prices and it uh, it's it's not competition is 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 good in the marketplace but it's not an unalloyed good thing because there is also there can be excessive competition especially within within the company or you know when when people spend so much time in self promoting in a large corporation because they're competing with people so instead of worrying about your competitor outside you are you spend so much time uh, uh, sort of looking over the shoulder of the guy who sits next to you and that sort of thing you know also in a family there can be just unhealthy competition between brothers and that kind of competition is unhealthy can you give an example that uh, during your stint at png that you faced such unhealthy competition and you were against it although you supported capitalism well i i remember now this was before we became png it was still the good old vic vic company vic vic or rob and uh, this was richardson in the sun and there was a colleague of mine we were both equal and just this so happened that my office was 2 inches larger than his aha uh-huh. and so it the personnel people put in a little sofa and it is they put a very nice comfortable chair and uh, people thought of course that because i had the sofa i was more important so mm-hmm. he felt diminished in the eyes of the world by that and he spent two years being feeling very unhappy uh because of that you see and just imagine how uh, i mean there is a need we all human beings need to feel important to feel affirmed but competition creates that sense of anxiety status anxiety and that's not healthy <laughs> It's well it's amusing for me but it would have been for you too back then uh, with your colleague yeah and when i read your articles i come across one common thread it's like integrity is of paramount importance to you i quote you from one of your articles if you have to work you might as well work honestly is what it says so can you cite an example during your time in the corporate world when you drew a lot of flack for being an idealist and refrained from bribing an official and now with the benefit of hindsight you feel proud about that moment well there was one moment when we were starting procter and gamble in india we were starting a detergent plant this was being set up near bhopal in a place called mandi deep and most of my career i mean i would say it was pretty much free of you know people asking for bribes because we were not in that kind of business we were not in selling aircraft or government or defense equipment and stuff but the superintending engineer from the government he demanded a bribe i think 50000 rupees uh-huh. for giving us a high tension wire connection 
to our factory. And we did not pay, and I refused that. And also, it delayed us. Everything was ready, the raw materials were there, the employees were there. Everything was ready to start except the electricity. And we waited six weeks for that. And eventually, I mean, the guy just got tired of it. <laughs> In frustration, he, uh, he gave us the electricity connection. Oh, that's great. But we lost quite a bit of money. Oh, okay. So then there must have been instances where you as an authority would have uh, sacked someone close to you after you learned that he'd been untruthful. Has Have such uh, strong decisions been taken by you, if I may ask? Uh, sacking somebody for integrity, you know, I can't think immediately. There must have been. I mean, there were, my, I fully had my share of people that I had to fire during my working career. But sometimes it was for performance, and I can't immediately think of integrity being the issue. But that was of uh, great value to you. The yeah. yeah. And it, it was okay that it came at the cost of your bottom line. Yeah, I think so. I think that uh, it is very, very important. Yeah. And you've also worked closely with policymakers and bureaucrats. But to me, as a common man, I only read about an IAS in the news when he commits a crime. I want to ask you, why is it that when given all the power in the world, it is not used in the right manner? Well, uh, I think that uh, there are constraints on officials, political constraints, and certainly there are some very hard-working officials. So it's not fair to paint the whole IAS with a with a you know with a brush of black. But the system that we have in India I think is the is the problem. And that's why we need to reform, do administrative reforms which would reward officials for results and which would reward them for doing the right thing and also at the same time punish them very severely both for doing the wrong things as well as for not producing results. We need much more accountability, essentially. So the, the thing is, in our idealism, we have created, we created a service that essentially you cannot fire anybody. And when you cannot fire anybody, then some of your, the most important tool for accountability goes away. And not only not fire, but you can't actually punish people either. And, and that's why whether you do great, do a great job or do a lousy job, you have you are treated the same. Good people get demoralized. Right. Secondly, do you also think uh, this is a very controversial question, but I would still go ahead and ask you that: Do you think are they paid enough? Because they don't seem to be from from what I see as a common man. I agree with that. I think they are not paid enough. In fact. They should work towards a consolidated system where they don't get housing and cars and all that. Just a consolidated salary be the best system for You've always stressed on education as one of the ways of building a strong economy. And uh, everyone seems to be talking about IIMs and IITs. And they are known world over for their tremendous contribution. But no one seems to heed on primary education? Is it because it is less glamorous or simply because no one cares as it has a very long gestation period? Yeah, well, that's true. I think all those 
reasons are correct. And of course, the whole thing, it's really in your first five years that everything is, you know, the difference is made. And so if you do not receive a good primary education, you are disadvantaged for life. And that is exactly where the focus of a lot of my writing, in my columns, is. And it's really very disturbing that one out of four school teachers does not show up in a government primary school. One out of two teachers who does show up is not teaching. Right. So this is a huge, a massive failure. Again, going back to the whole problem of accountability, you cannot fire a teacher who is absent or chronically absent. And also teachers' unions are very powerful. And teachers play a very big role in elections. They are the invigilators at elections. They are the returning officers at election time. The politicians are also scared of them. <laughs> it, it, and, and, you know, I mean, all our politicians, many of them, are, are teachers, were school teachers. Oh. Uh, Mayavati was a school teacher. Mulan Singh Yadav was a school teacher. And 21% uh, of UP's MLAs are school teachers. Oh. So, but the the good news is private schools are mushrooming all over, particularly good, but at least they are better than government schools. Uh, just to give you an example, our a maid who serves around 10 households, she has got two daughters, and she sends them to a private school in a rickshaw by spending thrice as much amount in fees and spurning free books, bags, and uniform from the municipal school. And she comes back after the end of every semester and she shows to my mom her daughter's report card. Yeah, so, so she says it's better to put my daughters in a private school than in a public school, which, is pro which provides everything. Correct, correct. So India's story is really a story of a people's success from below. You know, 54% of people in urban India, 54% of primary school children now, are in private primary schools in urban India. This is huge. It's one of the highest numbers in the world. And this is not because of the encouragement that is given to primary, private schools, but because of the failure of government schools. You are a very strong critic of the government, uh, and everybody knows about it, and also a fan of capitalism. But what do you have to say to instances like, uh, for example, very recently, British Airways was fined around half a billion dollars for colluding with Virgin to fix the fuel charges, uh, which were artificially inflated. Or closer home, some of our telecom operators charged around 150 rupees for an incoming call if you maintain your number, India's cell phone number when you go abroad. So, yeah. The, the thing there is, you know, in every society, you have crooks and you have failures, and you've got to catch them, and you've got to punish them. And I'm delighted that if there is, been, whenever there's price fixing or colluding, that means they are going around the competitive rules. And so, I, I, you know, I'm not, I by no means think that capitalism is some kind of nirvana. There are a lot of failures in capitalism. Where that's why it's important to have enlightened regulation. But I think the benefit of the doubt should be on the individual and on the enterprise. And uh, you should only, you should go after crooks and not harass ordinary uh, citizens. I mean, it's now pretty clear that the market economy mm -hmm. always outperforms a socialist economy. Right. But that also means that we have responsibilities. And I don't think we can depend on just 
good moral natures of human beings. Because in every society you will have people who are Duryodhanas, who are crooks. So you have to design a system which will create the competition and those who break the rules should, you know, should be punished. You mentioned about Duryodhana and that's another thing that I've noticed that most of your articles, you draw parallels to history. So how is that? How do you draw a thread out of nowhere in history and plug it in? Well, I think it's often very, it's helpful to a reader to connect with the past, particularly a past that he or she may have read about. And and now I'm working on a new book, which is really based on the Mahabharata. I'm oh. a book of moral philosophy, and uh, it's taking ideas from the Mahabharata. And, and relating them to today. That may be one of the reasons why you find a lot of parallels with the Mahabharata. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us more about the book if it's not very confidential? Well, it's, it's now uh, about 80% finished. And uh, it's early to talk too much about it. That I think it's a book which looks at our moral failures of day-to-day life, especially governance failures. It uses the framework of dharma in the Mahabharata and relates the present to the characters and their and what they did. And also, I get uh, the text to speak in the in you know I I mean there's a lot of uh, the Mahabharata in the book where people I don't read the Mahabharata anymore. So this is a chance for them to see the flavor of of the text. You, you have an audience in me already. Okay, thank you. <laughs> your articles and your books have a storytelling format, like always. How much of it is genuinely uh, true? For example, you uh, mentioned about how the desperate meeting to bail India out among uh, Chidambaram, Dr. Manmohan Singh, Bibi Narasimha Rao, and Montek Singh Alwalia. Mm-hmm. The dialogues that they exchange over that coffee table seemed to come straight out of a movie, and it, it seemed that I could visualize the meeting as it would have happened. Yeah. So... <laughs> How much of it is true or is it like you don't let the truth to come in the way of a good story? No, I mean, if it's a work of non-fiction, then it has to be true. So if it's a novel, then of course it's fiction. So when you're writing non-fiction, and certainly in the stuff in India Unbound, it's, uh, I've, I've, I've written about uh, people and, and their actions, and it's based on either interviews or, you know, it's footnoted. Right. But you have a way with words which uh, has made quite a lot of my friends to sit together and talk about it. Thank you. And you've always stressed that a successful marketer in the book as well is the one who likes to be on the field in hardcore sales, at least to begin with. So can you give an example that helped you come up with an insight that uh, you would have never come across had you been sitting in your cabin? Well, it's, you know, right in, in India Unbound, I tell a story about visiting Surat. And this is soon after I joined the company. And since I, you know, I went to the bazaar and and in the evenings, of course, the bazaar is crowded. And the chemist would not see me at that time as a company representative. So I decided to do some market research on my own. And I visited this middle-class colony in Surat and found a lady, a Gujarati lady, middle-class home. And I was, and I asked, her some questions about what she did for coughs and colds and so on. She asked me into the house and she showed me a kettle and I thought she was going to serve me tea. 
but it was actually a kettle in which she put a spoon of Vicks vapor up, <laughs> and then she said, "Now let's breathe, breathe through the spout." Right. And and she had figured out this way of using Vicks vapor up, and she didn't know I was from that company, and so I suddenly realized that what my purpose of my work was that satisfaction of consumers and making women like this that you know in some ways enhancing their lives was what really what uh, ultimately pays your salary in a company and and it's not sort of the time you spend trying to please your boss it's the time you spend uh, understanding people's needs and satisfying them and you must have saved a lot of money in research for your company with that insight of yours <laughs> Uh, talking very briefly about women, uh, what do you think is the future of microfinance that is profiting from lending to the poor in India? You're working very closely with uh, a company, I, I know. Yeah, SKS Microfinance, and I'm very proud of that company. And uh, I think microfinance uh, is a wonderful, wonderful thing. I mean, it's amazing how long it took us to discover it. But it is a way. It's really a way how the market. can really help the poor the fact is that when banks have now discovered that the loan default rate amongst microfinance lenders is less than that amongst their other customers it's really suddenly become a self generating way and it it's really the best example of how the market can you know once you try to use the market to solve the ordinary needs of or in the people and it a person from in SKF who takes a loan typically uses it to start a, some kind of business either a, gets a buffalo and starts selling milk or a sewing machine to start stitching garments so if people could have access to capital in that way i mean this is, would be wonderful and that's really what's happening uh, so then for the poor uh, earlier they only had two options either to lend from the money lender Yeah. who will be a very exorbitant or the bank who ask for collateral so now in comes sks microfinance and earns through some interest which is very nominal is, is is that correct well the interest rate is not nominal because the risk is high the interest rate typically is around 24 25% of course this is less than the 100% <laughs> that the money lender charges but the amazing thing is that people take these loans for short periods and they return them rather on a weekly basis so it's really as they are as they're earning they're returning the loan and so it doesn't become a burden and that's why the secrets are these self help groups that intervene in between of the women who actually create the sort of pressure on people to return their loan and therefore they can qualify for a bigger loan for a business interesting i mean i think it should be taught in economics now because this defies normally what is taught that uh, you do not lend to somebody who cannot yeah or you doesn't have a collateral right yeah exactly <laughs> and one last thing that i had for you is that in your writing you've always been very vehement as in i don't see any gray area at all if something is bad it should be corrected and if something is good uh, you stand by it So has it ever happened that your writing has changed the system that someone in the government took notice and was ashamed and tried to do something good well there there have been some examples of this 
I don't know how effective has been the responses, but I know that, for example, I wrote a column about the water problem in Delhi, and I understand that uh, Sheila Dixit and others tried to see how they could revive that scheme after it had almost died. There, there have been other examples as well. I, I don't know always whether they are, but there have been enough examples where I feel sort of vindicated. Uh, as a writer, you always say that uh, it's a lonely business. <laughs> so this would give you a lot of uh, encouragement. If, uh, that's a cliche. Yeah, certainly does. You also happen to be a cricket fan. And I read about your article on how livid you were with BCCI's negative reaction to Subhash Chandra's ICL. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've seen already the impact, just the fear of the ICL before even it got started made the BCCI start a alternative league and that is going to be the best thing for Indian cricket. They'll compete with each other and and, and so, I mean, it kind of vindicated my opinion. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Indian Premier League and they're supposedly paying them more. So in other words, the cricketers will be happy at the domestic level. They get paid. Yeah. I'm happy because as a customer, I get to see competition. Advertisers are happy because they get to insert ads. Correct. That's capitalism then. Yeah. Well, Mr. Gurcharandas, thank you for your time. I must say, yeah. it was a privilege talking to you and thanks a lot. Okay, Abhishek. Bye-bye. Yeah. Log on to www.theindicast.com and leave your comments in the point blank section of Indicast. Bye-bye.